HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2020. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Suppose I told you you were sweet. Okay, but imagine that I did it in a nice way. Not in like a weird way, but in a way that was natural and genuine. Like, hey, that was really sweet. You'd feel good, right? And then I'd feel good that you felt good, and then we'd both feel good because that's the point of compliments. But now, suppose I told you that you were bitter. It's okay if you can't imagine that I did that in a nice way. It's not a particularly nice thing to say. And there's a reason for that. You see, someone who is sweet is warm and radiant and charming because foods that are sweet are full of nutrients and sugars and things that our bodies need to stay alive. When we eat sweet things, our tongues send signals to our brains that say, hey, keep eating, this stuff is good. And when we eat bitter things, our tongues send signals to our brains that say, hey, look out, seriously, this is probably full of poison. Which, come to think of it, is true of bitter people, too. And yet, as we get older, we're drawn to bitter things. Cilantro, coffee, bok choy, black tea, gin and tonics, to say nothing about the bitter cordials that we've all been knocking back for the fun of it for centuries. But it makes you wonder, if this sense evolved to keep us safe, if we taste bitterness to keep us from eating things that could literally kill us, why do we like it so much? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show where we talk about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Today, for our season finale, we're going to dive deep into the Negroni, a bitter Italian classic that's equal parts gin, aperitivo, and sweet vermouth. Now, I'm going to tip my hand a little and admit that where I'm sitting, the Negroni is one of the tastiest things that human beings have ever invented, and I'll stand by that but it's not the only reason that we're talking about this drink. We're talking about it because it's sharp, which is bartender speak for unapologetically bitter, and that's rare for a successful drink in a sugar-crazed country like this one. 
But it's also interesting because the Negroni doesn't follow the typical rise, fall, and rise again pattern of a lot of the drinks we've talked about on this show. Instead, it has these flare-ups, these little pockets of intense popularity that seem to explode out of nowhere and then die back a little bit, waiting for the next heyday. We're in one of those right now, particularly where I'm living in New York City, but the biggest one, including the one that we're living through, happened on a little street in Rome during a time that the locals called Dopoguerra. Michael Chiarello. If I were James Bond, an Italian Bond, of course, a Negroni would be my drink. It's a masculine drink, not sweet, but with huge flavors. It commands the question, what's that you're drinking? Via Vittorio Veneto was a not particularly quiet street in Rome. It ran from the Borghese Gardens on one end to the American Embassy at the other, through a city that was gradually waking up from the long, slow nightmare of World War II. But when the Italians sifted through the wreckage of their losing side in a global conflict, something unexpected happened. The Café Doni and the Café Rosati opened their doors across the street from one another on Via Veneto, and waiters put tables on the sidewalk. And then, people sat at them. They started eating, drinking, talking, laughing. They were, there's no way around it, having fun. And it wasn't long before the two cafes couldn't contain the party, and it spilled down the block and through the streets and then into the rest of the city and the rest of the country. And soon, people who could barely afford roofs over their heads were putting on their best clothes to dine and dance and fall in love. This was Dopoguerra which means post-war. And it's what happens when people come out from under the weight of decades of fascism and can finally breathe again. And for all that celebration, the drink of choice, the toast of the hour, was the Negroni. There's something really charming and egalitarian about its one-to-one-to-one recipe that refuses to make one ingredient more important than the others, which is a really juicy middle finger to Mussolini and his fascist clowns and all their better-than-thou bullshit. So on that alone, the Negroni made sense. But the origins of those ingredients are just as important. The gin, which is decidedly English, conveys class and worldliness and a not-so-subtle sense of, hey, no hard feelings, it's water under the bridge, and besides, we kind of hated that guy too. But the other two-thirds, the Campari and the Sweet Vermouth, are loudly, proudly Italian. In 1786, Antonio Benedetto Carpano, an herbalist from Turin, added a secret blend of botanicals to a fortified wine and created the first bottle of Sweet Vermouth. Three-quarters of a century later, Gaspare Campari opened a cafe in Milan and started serving the signature ruby-red aperitivo he was also confident enough to name after himself. Given that Turin and Milan are so close, and given that Carpano's Vermouth and Campari's Liqueur were both wildly successful and delicious, it was only a matter of time before they ended up together in the same cocktail glass. I mean, I very, very, very vividly actually remember drinking my first Negroni um, and being a little taken aback by it. That's Natasha David, co-owner of Nightcap in New York City. 
In the mid-2000s, she watched the cocktail revolution come into its own, right around the time when it started motioning to its friends from across the bar and whispering, psst, hey, try this. To me, drinks were fruity and sweet, and not that there's anything wrong with that. I think there's definitely a time and a place for something fruity and sweet. But, you know, the idea that something on the bar could have so many layers, um, that it could, you know, use so many different things, all these herbs and barks, and, you know, you, you don't think of booze in that way until you do, and then that's all you see. As tasty as they are, Campari and Sweet Vermouth didn't just come out of nowhere. The baking spice notes from Turin and the razor's edge grapefruit bite from Milan were the products of a storied and very, very, very long Italian tradition that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. During a time when monasteries and abbeys were the only reliable source of competent information for miles around, Monks and friars would scour the countryside, looking for the roots, fruits, barks, and herbs that would make their neighbors feel better. These alchemy-minded holy men would steep their botanicals in spirits or wine to extend their shelf life and ramp up their potency, and then they'd sell them or give them away as medicine. It sounds like quack science, I know, but remember that until very recently, most of the medicines we used in our daily lives came from chemicals and plants, and a lot of them, like the active ingredient in aspirin, still do. However, as medical science evolved to make their local cure-alls obsolete, the monks drifted into the recreational market, selling their secret recipes as aperitifs or digestifs, or to use a blanket term for all bitter liqueur, amaro. And to make that switch, they had to add a hefty amount of extra sugar, because while most successful Amaro today are a balanced mix of sweet and sharp, it's a safe bet that these ancestral liqueurs were really, really, really bitter. Paul Clark. Beauty and belligerence seldom mingle so sweetly as when they nestle together in a Negroni. Take a minute and think about what bitterness is. The plants those monks were using and the chemicals they were extracting from them were useful in small doses to cure headaches or gas or whatever, but in high enough concentrations, they would almost certainly kill you. And that's true about medicine today. Take the right amount and you're going to feel better. Take the wrong amount and you're going to feel much, much worse. And the fact is, our planet is festooned with leaves and barks and berries that will leave us dead if we put too much of them in our mouths and swallow. Which is why, before human beings even existed, our ancestors developed a failsafe. A million years ago, give or take, the primates that we eventually descended from evolved to taste bitterness. When we came along, about 800,000 years later, we experienced it as one of the five major tastes, but our ancestors used it as an early warning system to identify something that was probably poisonous. The theory goes that if something's toxic, the bitter receptors on our tongue send a signal to our brain that makes us want to spit it out and move on, which is a pretty neat trick, biologically speaking. Think about it. If something tastes sweet, the receptors on your tongue, your taste buds, are telling your brain that whatever you're eating is full of sucrose, which is a thing that our bodies need to survive. 
Salty flavors tell us about electrolytes, umami lets us know about protein, and sour flavors can clue us into vitamins. Out of all the major flavors, bitterness is the only one that tells us across the board when not to eat something. And since toxicity levels in plants can vary mile by mile, it makes sense that our ability to taste bitterness is incredibly sensitive. For what I'm about to tell you, you need to know that a mole is an incredibly small unit of measurement, and that in a liter of water, human beings can usually detect about two one-hundredths of a mole of sugar. Which is impressive, until you look at bitterness, where humans can spot about .00081 one-hundredths of a mole of quinine, and keep in mind That's the main ingredient in tonic water, one of the bitter flavors we actually kind of like. This was a drink that was normally appreciated by probably home enthusiasts, bartenders, cocktail geeks, and old Italian men. You know what I mean? That was kind of. Naren Young is the former creative director at Dante in New York's Greenwich Village. The Negroni, with its bitter edge, was the centerpiece of his beverage program, and he's seen a lot of people warm to these flavors that eons of evolution are telling us not to enjoy. You know what I mean? That was kind of who was drinking it, you know, and, and <laughs> now, it's part of, now it's part of popular culture, you know, like young people, old people, men, women, you know, morning, noon, night, it doesn't, it, it's not, doesn't necessarily fit into a mold anymore of like who drinks it or when they drink it. It's become a kind of a much more... Um, you know, you get egalitarian drink that I guess you're seeing a lot more people appreciate it. And despite some pretty intense biological hardwiring, people do appreciate Amaro. In the early years of the 20th century, Gaspare Campari's eponymous brainchild was playing with the neighbor kid, another Italian liqueur from Turin known as Amaro Cora. Imbibers were mixing the two of these in equal portions to make the Torino Milano until they started playing with another local ingredient. Then, they swapped in Antonio Carpano's vermouth in place of Amaro Cora to make a Milano Torino. And that worked for a little while, until soda water and the country that made it cool showed up. Then, it was only a matter of time before everything was getting spritzed with seltzer, including those 50-50 blends of Campari and vermouth that everybody had been drinking. And of course... They named the new bubbly blend after the hippest, edgiest, metalist, most you-haven't-heard-of-it country in the world. Americanos. Of course. So now, Campari, Sweet Vermouth, and Soda Water are all together in the same glass. The setup was there. All it needed was the spark of someone coming along one day and saying, Hey, kick this up a notch, will ya? But this notion that we're talking about, about adding gin to Campari and vermouth, it's not just any idea. So it didn't occur to just any guy. The guy we're talking about, the guy who had probably one of the best ideas in all of cocktail history, he was nobility. And a lush. And a high-stakes gambler. And a fencing expert and a Wild West cowboy. The man who invented this drink had a life story so crazy that people honestly thought that he was a myth for a century. But he wasn't, and his name was Count Camillo Negroni. Camillo Negroni. I learned enough about Stud, Kino, and Faro to get broke and stay that way. 
punching horses suited me to death, and I went adventuring over the ranges. I roughed it plenty. The Count spent the early years of the 20th century roaming through North America, leaving his mark on the New World. But when he wasn't teaching swordsmanship, driving cattle through Yellowstone, or winning the modern equivalent of $100,000 at the track only to lose it all in one night at an uptown poker table, the man liked to have a drink. So, when he moved back to Florence in 1912 and encountered the Americano, it's probable that he liked it. But he thought it could use a little something extra. And then came the fateful day when he walked into the Café Cossoni and ordered a drink from the barman, his friend Fosco Scarcelli. It was either 1919 or 1920. We're not 100% sure which, but what we do know is that the Count bellied up to the bar and ordered his usual Americano, Iro Bostire, that is, fortified. As he, the Count didn't want the playful bubbles of soda water. He wanted the unbridled punch of gin, and thus, the Negroni was born. He must have liked it because, well, for one, he named it after himself, which kind of seems like it's a thing with these guys. But in 1920, a friend wrote him a letter politely suggesting that he not take more than 20 Negronis a day. Which is good advice just across the board, but if anybody was going to do it, our boy Camillo was the guy. Michael Procopio. If a person could model oneself after a cocktail, I knew that the Negroni was exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. It's odd, though. You'd think with how universally beloved the Negroni is today that it would have caught on sooner. There's a good 25-plus years between the Count's brilliant discovery and Dopoguera. You'd think that someone, somewhere along the line, would have swooped in with gin, campari, and red vermouth to appreciate it. And it turns out that somebody... In fact, a lot of somebody's did during the Jazz Age in Paris. The dawn of the 1920s saw the French capital squarely in the center of the universe. Artists, writers, painters, actors, composers, and other highly fashionable types were arriving by the score, including Alice B. Toklas, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Pablo Picasso, Cole Porter, and Gertrude Stein. As a biographer of one Ernest Miller Hemingway would put it later, the most interesting people in the world lived in Paris. It was perfect, in other words, for a brand activation. The good folks at Campari made the prudent move to flood the streets of Paris with their product. Campari ads, Campari books, Campari cocktail contests, all the stuff that looks familiar to us today as a brand trying to carve out a foothold, they did it. And... It worked. The red stuff was everywhere, and it even inspired a pair of classics that survive a century later in the Old Pal and the Boulevardier. These days, they're both typically lumped in as Negroni variants, with Canadian rye in the first and bourbon in the second, but it's much more likely that they sprung up independently on the aperitivo-drenched streets of Old Paris. Phil Ward. I love the Negroni for a lot of reasons. One of which is that it's a drink that's possible to order in almost any dive bar, though it's a risky procedure. Now, even if bartenders don't know what it is, you just tell them equal parts on the rocks, and from there, the adventure begins. How old and rancid is that bottle of stock sweet vermouth? How badly will they pour three 
equal parts. Forrest Gump's mom was wrong. Life isn't like a box of chocolates. <laughs> it's like a Negroni in a dive bar. You just never know what you're going to get. And then, of course, France had its Negroni lookalikes. The Campari Cardinal from 1926 is a mix of gin and vermouth with a splash of Campari, with a Campari mixed day two years later elevates the Italian liqueur to an equal partner, essentially making it a Negroni by a different name. It's entirely possible, too, that the Count himself even had something to do with this. He would have had to stop through Paris on the way from Florence to London, and he could have easily shared his baby with the artists and creators that were littering the Parisian streets with their modernism and their jazz-age excess and all that oh-so-incredibly-sexy angst. But there was one other thing that Paris in the 1920s and Italy in the 1940s had in common besides a love of art, music, dancing, sex, and bitter Milanese liqueur. Both of these places were broken. These two Negroni hotspots of exuberance and partying, they were recovering from the after effects of two devastating world wars. Italy in the late 40s was destroyed, but Paris in the early 1920s wasn't much better. It had just escaped a long-range German bombing campaign and years of being close enough to the front that soldiers were carried there in taxis. It's odd that these two times and places share a legacy of destruction and an affinity for Campari, but it points to something even stranger in the life of the Negroni. Time and time and time again, this drink comes bubbling to the surface right in the aftermath of tragedy, and not quietly either. One of its signatures, its, its calling cards, is showing up out of nowhere to fanfare and acclaim and wild celebration in the wake of terrible, terrible pain. And the origins of that legacy are coming up after this. Well, we're back. As weird as it is to think about, New York City and a lot of other places around the world are back. And that means barbecues, that means street parties, that means bars. Bars are back. And I know as excited as we all are to sit at them, some of us are even more excited to get back behind them. So we're all getting back in the swing of things, no matter what side of the bar we're on. And we're all looking for some excitement, something different, something we didn't see every day, certainly not for the past year and maybe not even before that. So where can we go to learn these skills, these new skills, important skills that we didn't have before? Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, it probably won't surprise you to learn that the answer is diageobaracademy.com. But what might surprise you is in addition to the universal and accessible nature of their classes that we've been talking about this whole summer, they also have master classes. And this is the fancy stuff, the varsity stuff, the impressive skills that people aren't going to see coming. Think large format cocktails, think cocktails on tap and frozen drinks, and even their summer served up series, which will teach you how to make your favorite summer drink into your new favorite summer popsicle. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, sure, all the fundamentals and the 101 stuff, that was free, but surely this is behind a paywall, right? Nope. Still 100% on the house, and don't worry, they still have classes and resources for any skill set, any level of experience, and any position from barback to beverage director. So stay informed, 
connected, and inspired to grow your career and your business by visiting diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Cheers. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh cut hay and meadow sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the midnight marigold tomorrow either. Trust me. To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. Cheers. Let's turn the clocks back 20 years in New York City. Go out on a Friday night and ask your bartender to make you a cocktail. There's a good chance you're going to get something sweet, brightly colored, called a martini because it's in a martini glass. Ask for a Negroni and you might get a puzzled look or a shrug or a polite suggestion that maybe you should just order off of the menu. Or you might not. Just a few months ago, Sasha Petrasky opened Milk and Honey behind an unmarked door on the Lower East Side. And its bartenders are selling bespoke cocktails based on classic recipes with heretofore unknown liqueurs and lemon juice that came from an actual lemon. Now, Manhattan is still a long way out from a mixologist on every corner, but there is a movement. It's tiny. It's nerdy. It's mostly men to its detriment. It's preaching the notion that cocktails are to be respected and enjoyed. And its secret handshake is the Negroni. Was the Negroni ever kind of, uh, if you walked into a bar and ordered one of those, the bartender would go, ah, this this is this yeah, is not I your first so. rodeo. Like one of those drinks back then you wanted to order to like show that you were have like a sophisticated palate. <laughs> Move ahead half a decade to 2005. Natasha David is bartending her way through college at NYU. Pegu Clubs just opened in Soho, and on St. Mark's, PDT is only two years away. The love of the obscure, the foreign, the ancient, and the resurrected is picking up steam. And even though Natasha doesn't see it yet, in just a few years, she's going to be caught up in it too, chasing the joys of those dusty old forgotten bottles that live on the back bar. How much did kind of, you know, a love of obscure, nerdy, esoteric things kind of play into the identity of the scene at the time? I think it completely, it, it, it was the identity. Um, you know, I I was literally just drinking flowers, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, the thought, I, you know, every bar has a bottle of Campari, but, like, you never think about it, right? I mean, the dive bar I worked at, the Irish pub had a bottle of Campari. I don't think I ever once in my life opened it. <laughs> Flash forward to 2010. 
Death & Company wins world's best cocktail menu for its East Village haunt at Tales of the Cocktail, and a pair of Belfast bartenders named Sean and Jack take home the coveted title of world's best cocktail bar. Two years later, in the middle of a hurricane, they'll introduce New York's financial district to Dead Rabbit. And Natasha is diving deeper and deeper into the cocktail scene, looking to change the way that people think and talk about flavor. You know, part of the whole renaissance was reintroducing everybody to um, bottles that we didn't really think about. Um, And it was also about expanding people's um, taste, right? And exposing people to new flavors. So, you know, if you were to tell somebody, hey, drink something bitter, I think automatically you go, why? Why would I want to drink something bitter if I can have something sweet, right? Um, so it, it, it completely changed the way I think people drink and eat when all these bottles were sort of rediscovered during this time. Now it's 2015. Last year, Natasha teamed up with two founders from Death & Co. and launched Nightcap, which she's still going to be running five years later. And in Greenwich Village, the owner of a 100-year-old Italian cafe sells his shop to a couple of Australians with big plans for the storied location. They want to honor the history of the space and the neighborhood, and that means Italian food in the kitchen and a morrow behind the bar. Together with their creative director, Naren, they build the place out and relaunches Dante that summer. And the Negroni is their star. As we're gearing up to open Dante, you know, we took a lot of inspiration from the old world, so you know, a lot of old drinks from Spain, Italy, France, and so forth. So it made sense for us to kind of, you know, zero in on this kind of iconic cocktail from Italy and really kind of use that as a platform for us to dive deep into it and explore the opportunities um, of where we could take this drink. In a blind tasting in 2017, Robert Simonson of the New York Times gave Naren's Negroni the Best in Show Award. This drink that was once an esoteric long shot, it was now a fan favorite. And in 2019, Dante ranked number one on the list of world's 50 best bars, with the Negroni at its core. We were definitely there at the right time at that vanguard of when, you know, um, tastes were changing, people were starting to appreciate it, you know, cocktails are getting, you know, a bit more complex and those flavor flavor parameters are really kind of being stretched. I think that it's, um, we were definitely there at the right time to really explore, um, the avenues of what was possible with the Negroni. It was also around this time that the Negroni settled into two norms, its classic one-to-one-to-one ratio and a consistent pattern of bartenders breaking that rule. Pick up just about any cocktail book published in the last 15 years and turn to the section on the Negroni, which they all have, and you're basically guaranteed to see some version of a speech that goes, this is a classic cocktail made from three equal parts, but here's the way... I like to do it. It also probably won't surprise you that most of these variations involve dialing up the gin because, well, these are bartenders after all. But it's also not hard to see why cocktail pros and then enthusiasts and then the public at large embraced the Negroni once cocktails were cool again. It's not a sweet drink or a kissing cousin to a neat glass of whiskey. It's unusual. It's got at least one ingredient that a lot of people haven't heard of, and that makes it worldly. It's laced with tons of botanicals and an unapologetically bitter overtone, and that makes it challenging. 
It's the perfect wink to say, without having to actually come out and say it, hey, don't worry, I'm not one of these Amaretto Sour neophytes. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Gaz Reagan. The incredible aspect of the Negroni that not everyone understands or agrees with is that it works every time, no matter what brand of gin or sweet vermouth you use. And you can slap my wrists and call me Deborah if it doesn't also work no matter what ratios you use. And so, by inches, and then feet, and then leaps and bounds, the Negroni conquered America. It's a little odd that such a sharp cocktail managed to win the hearts and minds of such a sugar-crazy nation, but it did. And yet, in another sense, it's odd that it took so long. Because it turns out that Americans had another chance to fall in love with gin and vermouth and Italian bitters in a near-miss opportunity from a century ago on the other side of the continent in San Francisco. In 1907, an Italian-language newspaper from the Bay Area started running a series of ads for Campari. Their sponsor, the Ceruti Mercantile Company, distributed the stuff up and down the West Coast, and the ads politely suggested that the aperitivo would probably be really, really good in a cocktail. Now, the martini was the darling of the day, although at the time it was fashionable to make it with sweet vermouth instead of dry. So it's plausible maybe even likely, that somebody would have tried splicing some Campari in there too, and wound up with something that was very close to the Count's famous creation. Rosie Schapp. I don't mess with the Negroni. The straightforwardness of its customary one-to-one-to-one proportions is not only elegant, it's also a gift to anyone behind a busy bar who gets even the least bit addled when trying to remember recipes. My own weird mnemonic for the drink was a robust shout only in my mind, of course, so as not to alarm the customers, of equality. My cue that the drink demands equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. All that said, if this did happen in the Golden State, then nobody bothered to write it down. Or, at the very least, the records didn't survive. But bartenders have always been a curious bunch, and it's a safe bet that somebody, somewhere, tried mixing Cerruti's imports in with their vermouth and their gin even if they did forget to ring up the boys in Milan the next day and tell them all about it. However, even though we don't get a full Negroni recipe in 1900 San Francisco, we still get its traditional opening act, rubble. Just a year earlier, in 1906, a 7.9 magnitude earthquake struck the city one morning, causing widespread destruction. It toppled buildings and sparked fires that would burn for the next four days. Once the flames were out, over 3,000 people were dead, and 80% of the city was destroyed. And then, just a couple months later, San Franciscans gravitated to bitter amaro in the wake of tragedy. Just like Parisians would 20 years after them, and Italians 20 years after that. Just like 100 years later... New Yorkers after 9-11 would, too. It's counterintuitive, right? You'd think that the years after a disaster would be a windfall for comfort food, that we'd all crouch down and nurse our most basic animal instincts with cake and soda and empty calories. 
It'd make sense if things like Pop-Tarts and potato chips that made us feel good without demanding a whole lot of effort in return were flying off the shelves, and yet time and time and time again, we come together to feel good and alive in the face of hardship by drinking bitters. It's like we have this urge to gather and celebrate and scream in the face of horror, screw you, I'm still here, and we do that by drinking stuff that our tongue is telling our brain is going to kill us. And it points to something interesting that's going on in the human body. Maybe we don't understand bitterness as well as we thought we did. In 2013, a group of researchers traveled to Africa. They were seeking out hunter-gatherer tribes to taste them on bitter flavors. The thinking went that if humans evolved an ability to taste bitter foods to stop us eating toxic plants and these groups still rely on that ability to survive, then their sense of bitterness must be very highly attuned. But it turned out that these nomads were no better or worse at detecting bitterness than those of us who get our food at the grocery store. What's more, the team discovered that bitter sensitivity varies wildly across Africa in ways that aren't tied to diet or lifestyle at all. Once their research was done, the results were clear. Tasting bitterness does not make you a better hunter-gatherer. Which means that maybe this sense doesn't exist to keep us from poisoning ourselves after all. Here's another weird thing about bitterness. It's not just on our tongues. Scientists have found bitter receptors in our skin, in our lungs, our gut, and even, hilariously, our testicles. Which means that this sense could be affecting our physiology in ways that we don't even understand yet. And that's fascinating, of course, but it begs the question, if we don't have this ability to keep us from poisoning ourselves, then what the hell is it for? And I feel like to ask that question is to stop and look at what bitterness is. Like, what is the actual sensation of eating something bitter? Simon Ford, I'm in the camp of people who love the Negroni and believe the world wouldn't be complete without it. I've always compared the Negroni to a pint of Guinness. The first pint of Guinness you ever drink tastes a little too bitter, but if you make it to a third pint, you'll be drinking it for the rest of your life. I feel the same way about the Negroni. The first one appeals only to those that have already acquired a taste for bitters, but... Once you fall for the Negroni, you'll drink it for the rest of your life. Bitterness isn't pain. It's a slight discomfort, sure, but if I was really hard-pressed to describe it, I'd call it a wake-up call. I think about my first sip of black coffee in the morning and that last shot of Fernet at close, and neither of them are unpleasant, because if they were, I wouldn't do them nearly as often. But both of them stop me in my tracks and give me that tiny sliver of time to really look around at what's going on. Something in those bitter flavors makes the front part of my brain, the human part, stop and go, whoa, whoa, what was that? To be fair, tasting bitterness isn't a human's only trait. All mammals and even something as simple as a fruit fly can do it. But seeking those flavors out... And liking them, that seems to be very distinctly us. 
When our ancestors learned to taste bitter flavors a million years ago, they were laying the groundwork for a system that we still don't fully understand. But maybe it was the beginning of something that let them stop and pause. To consider their surroundings with its flora and fauna in a way that their ancestors couldn't. And maybe that's why we, a million years later, can look at pain and suffering and hardship and terror and death and stand in the rubble and see it not for what it is, but for what it could be. I'm recording this right now in a closet. And by the time you hear it, it'll be almost three months since I've ridden the subway or a bus or even gotten in a car. Because I can't. The world is a dangerous and unstable place right now thanks to a rampaging and deadly virus, and no one knows how or when we're going to be able to emerge. But we're starting to look beyond that, and we're starting to think about ways to rebuild. 200 years ago, an old Napoleonic soldier named Gasparo Doni bought a cafe in Florence. Over time, his shop expanded, eventually taking over the space down the street where Fosco Scarcelli first poured gin into a cowboy's Americano. And from there, it was on to Rome, where construction on a new Café Doni began in the shadow of World War II and opened on Via Vittorio Veneto in 1946. And so this sliver of an idea, of a drink with just the right amount of bite, it traveled from a city in the north through a gutted countryside and landed in the capital where two cafe owners opened their doors, put tables on the street, and invited people to sit down. And they did. And they started celebrating. At first, they called this time and this feeling Dopo Guerra, but it wasn't long after that that they were calling it La Dolce Vita instead. So Kingsley Amos, the Negroni is really a fine invention. It has the power, rare with drinks and indeed with anything else, of cheering you up. Slowly, then surely, Camilo Negroni's cocktail came to symbolize a time of laughter and dancing and feeling alive, and a generation of Italians found relief from death and war and hate in a drink that was just the right amount of bitter and sweet. I've never been one for bright sides or silver linings or any of that stuff. I understand the impulse to make pain matter, to have it mean something so that it isn't just pointless suffering, and still, anytime someone's called whatever I'm going through a blessing in disguise, I kinda wanna slap them. Nothing horrible that ever happened needs to have a purpose, and I'm not suggesting that it does, just like I'm not saying that in a few months we're all going to be drinking Negronis and dancing and we won't have a care in the world. I'm not stupid. What I am saying is, we're built for this. For pain. For hardship. As an industry, as a country, as a species, we're made to look at something broken and fix it. It's on our skin, it's in our lungs, it's in our DNA. I honestly don't think we could not do it if we tried. Which is how I know, I know, that one day in the future, we, all of us, we're going to walk out our front doors. We're going to take a long, hard look at the world around us. 
and we're going to get to work to make it better. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Thank you so much to our two amazing guests today, Naren Young and Natasha David. And thanks also to our amazing cast who've turned in incredible performances all season long and did it again today from their couches, their bedrooms, and their closets. In order, you heard Nick Martin, Carolyn Kashner, Colin Connor, Alejandro Ruiz, Gary Kai Fletcher, Elliot Kashner, Mary Myers, Chris Stinson, and Francesca Chilcote. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Tune in next time for the premiere of our third season and the origins of the first cocktail ever. That's coming up in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.